0: Good morning. It is good to see all of you. Thank you for coming, joining us for worship this morning in Ivy Creek. If you've got your Bibles, I certainly hope that you do. Please take them. Turn with me once again to the book of Genesis and to chapter 35. This morning we're going to continue our study through Genesis. And we come to a passage that actually brings us effectively to uh, the close of Moses' consideration and emphasis upon the life of Jacob. You'll recall that we have followed... Uh, Jacob, since before he was even born, back when he was still in the womb of his mother along with his brother Esau, and the two of them were tussling about and even wrestling with one another in the womb. The Bible says they actually crashed upon one another in the middle of that pregnancy, and it was a terrible, horrible pregnancy for Rebekah. But you'll recall that Esau was born first, and then Jacob was born, and he was actually grasping the heel of his brother, attempting to try to gain precedence over his brother even at birth. We learn very quickly that as we study the two of their lives, that Esau and Jacob, though they were twins, they were nothing alike uh, as it pertains to even how they looked. Esau was red-skinned. He was hairy. He was a man of the field. He was a man who loved to hunt. He was a man driven by his passions and by his physical appetites, and Isaac, excuse me, Jacob, on the other hand, was, was more fair-complected. He was smooth-skinned. He was a one who liked hanging around the tents with his mother. He loved to cook. He enjoyed things, taking care of sheep, things along those lines. And so as we note, these two brothers really could not have been any more different than they were. And as we are going to read today, we see so were their families. So were their offspring. So were the, so were the nations that came from them. And it's interesting, as I studied this passage and prepared for this sermon this morning, a sentence kept running through my head. And it, it was a sentence that says this, from little things, big things grow. From little things, big things grow. I hope that will become evident to you today as we uh, make our way through this passage. And I, I thought it would be good to have you at least consider it, that sentence, before we actually read the text. You see, much of what we're going to read this morning... Uh, particularly in chapter 36, is not only difficult to read, it's difficult to follow. Um, It's one of those genealogical sections that when you come to it in Scripture, you really press your foot down on the gas pedal and just kind of burrow your way through it as fast as you can. There's a lot of names in chapter 36, most of whom we don't know anything about, nearly all of which are very difficult to pronounce and the truth is, this chapter is just nowhere near as exciting as perhaps countless other passages that we could go to and read and study this morning. And so that may bring up a question in your mind, is why would we spend any time on it? Why would we take time to read a passage in this Old Testament like this that, quite frankly, many of us will have a very difficult time figuring out how we can connect with it? Another way to phrase the question is, this, why chew on something that's hard to chew on? Why do it? Well... Remember, from little things, big things grow. Um, Often it is from small, out of the way, often ignored, skipped over passages, which come the mighty oaks of God's truth that you and I need to know in order to understand the world that is around us and to understand ourselves how we should grow in our own spiritual maturity. So let's get to it this morning. That's enough time wasted. Let's begin hearing the word of God, chapter 35, beginning in verse 16. We hear these words. Then they journeyed from Bethel, and when they were but a little distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel labored in childbirth, and she had hard labor. Now it came to pass when she was in hard labor that the midwife said to her, Do not fear, you will have this son also. And so it was, as her soul was departing, for she died, that she called his name Ben-Onai, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem, and Jacob set a pillar on her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. Then Israel journeyed and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. And it happened when Israel dwelt In the land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah were Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and Simeon, Levi. Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel were Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maidservant, were Dan and Naphtali. And the sons of Zilpah, Leah's maidservant, were Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre in Kirjath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had dwelt. Now, the days of Isaac were 180 years, so Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, being old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Now, this is the genealogy of Esau, who is Edom. Esau took his wives from the daughters of Canaan, Adah, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, Aholibamah, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite, and Basemath, Ishmael's daughter, sister of Nabajoth. Now, Adah bore Eliphaz to Esau, and Basemath bore Reuel, and Aholibamah bore Jeush and Jalem and Korah. These were the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters and all the persons of his household, his cattle and all the animals and all his goods which he had gained in the land of Canaan and went to a country away from the presence of his brother Jacob for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together and the land where they were strangers could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau dwelt in Mount Seir. Esau is Edom. And this is the genealogy of Esau, the father of the Edomites in Mount Seir. These were their names of Esau's sons, Eliphaz, the son of Adah, the wife of Esau, and Reuel, the son of Basemoth, the wife of Esau. And the sons of Eliphaz were Teman, and Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Kenaz. Now, Timnah was the concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son. And she bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These were the sons of Adah, Esau's wife. These were the sons of Reuel, Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These were the sons of Basimoth, Esau's wife. These were the sons of Aholibama, Esau's wife, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion, and she bore to Esau Jehus, Jalem, and Korah. These were the chiefs of the sons of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn son of Esau, were Chief Timnan, Chief Omar, Chief Zepho, Chief Kenaz, Chief Korah, Chief Gatim, and Chief. Amalek. These were the chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Edom. They were the sons of Adah. These were the sons of Reuel. Esau's sons, chief Nahath, chief Zerah, chief Shammah, and chief Mizah. These were the chiefs of Reuel in the land of Edom. These were the sons of Basemath, Esau's wife. And these were the sons of Bama, Esau's wife, chief Jehus, chief Jalam, chief Korah. And these were the chiefs who descended from Bama, Esau's wife, the daughter of Anna. These were the sons of Esau, who is Edom. And these were their chiefs. These were the sons of Seir the Horite, who inhabited the land, Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Anna, Dishon, Ezer and Dishon. These were the chiefs of the Horites, the sons of Seir in the land of Edom. And the sons of Lotan were Hori and Heman. And Lotan's sister was Timnah, and this was the sons of Shobal, Alvan, Manahath, Ebal, Shepho, and Onam. And these were the sons of Zibion, both Aja and Anna. This was the Anna who found the water in the wilderness as he pastured the donkeys in his father of his father Zibion. These were the children of Anna, Dishon and Aholibama, the daughter of Anna. These were the sons of Dishon, Hemdan, Eshban, Ithron, and Cheron. Kind of like Presley, Maggie, Chloe, and Charlie. but that's... <laughs> These were the sons of Ezzar, Bilhan, Zavan, and Ikon, And these were the sons of Dishon, Uz, and Aron. And these were the chiefs of the Horites, Chief Lotan, Chief Shobal, Chief Zibion, and Chief Anah, Chief Dishon, Chief Ezzar, and Chief Dishon. These were the chiefs of the Horites, according to the chiefs in the land of Seir. Now, These were the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the children of Israel. Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom, and the name of the city was Denhabah. And when Bela died, Jobab, the son of Zerah, and Basrah reigned in his place. And when Jobab died, Hushman, "...of the land of the Timonites reigned in his place. And when Husham died, Hadad, the son of Bedad, who attacked Midian in the field of Moab, reigned in his place. And the name of his city was Avith. When Hadad died, Samlah of Masrachah reigned in his place. And when Samlah died, Saul of Rehoboth by the river reigned in his place. And when Saul died, Baal-Hanan, the son of Akbor, reigned in his place." And when Baal Hanan, the son of Akbor, died, Hadar reigned in his place. And the name of his city was Powell, and his wife's name was Mehetabel. and the daughter of Matred, and the daughter of Mesbah, Mesahab. These were the names of the chiefs of Esau, according to their families and their places by their names. Chief Timnah, Chief Alva, Chief Jetheth, Chief Abaholibama, Chief Elah, Chief penon Chief Kenaz, Chief Timan, Chief Midbzar, Chief Magdiel, Chief Aram, these were the chiefs of Edom according to their dwelling places in the land of their possession. And Esau was the father of the Edomites. Verse 1, chapter 37, now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God and it is for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father... We thank you for your word, and Lord, we recognize that this far removed, this many thousands of years removed from this text, we recognize that it is difficult for us to find the connection. And it is difficult for us to realize exactly what it is that we're supposed to learn from a text just like this. But I pray this morning that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and wisdom from on high to understand that which we should recognize from this passage this morning. Let us not discard it and just glaze over, but, Father, help us to be able to to see it from a fresh set and a new perspective. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. So I told you in advance, this is a text that is filled with many names of people that we don't know, and those names are repeated quite often throughout this text which makes it even harder on the reader and harder on the listener, I am sure. The question is, what do we do with all of this that Moses has written down in this passage? How how should we digest it? Well, I think the best way to understand all that I have just read for us to consider this morning is, is to do it from a few different angles, to do it from different perspectives. In fact, that's why I've entitled today's sermon, Perspectives on Two Kingdoms. And the first perspective that I believe will will help us understand the purpose of this passage is the first one that I've listed for you there on your outline. You'll notice it here. It is the historical perspective. The historical perspective. Remember, Moses is the author of Genesis. And he wrote all of this down, as well as the rest of the Pentateuch, while he led the children of Israel during those 40 wandering years after Israel had been set free from their Egyptian slavery, and as they wandered out in the desert, he wrote what he did for their benefit. He wrote what he did for their encouragement to show them where they came from, to show them where they were going. Now, earlier in chapter 35, which I didn't read this morning, we we looked at it last week, Moses had already reiterated how God had reminded Jacob that he would no longer be known as Jacob. You remember he changed his name. He says, you will be known as Israel Israel. And then later in verses 11 and 12, he tells Jacob this. He says, you will be a nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you and kings shall come from your body. The land which I gave to Abraham and to Isaac I give to you and to your descendants after you I give this land. So these wandering Israelites that are out in the desert, these Israelites they, whose name they bear from Israel, Jacob whose name had been changed, they know that this is the one that they connect to. Not only that, but when, as we read this morning, when Moses gives the list of the 12 sons of Jacob, and he lists them all by name in verses 23 through 26, sons who would ultimately become the heads of the tribes of Israel then these wandering Israelites could connect themselves to the promise that God had given to Abraham through these sons and then ultimately through Israel and then through Isaac and then through back to Abraham. These are the historical perspective that Moses was drilling in to these nomadic wanderers in the desert. But I want you to know that Moses' historical perspective is not limited to the Israelites There's a key concept that repeats itself again and again and again in in chapter 36. I tried to emphasize it when I was reading it. The chapter begins this way. Now, this is the genealogy of Esau, who is Edom. And then later in verses 8 and 9, you see it again. So Esau dwelt in Mount Seir, Esau is Edom. And then the very next verse, it says, and this is the genealogy of Esau, the father of the Edomites. And then later down in verse 19, it says, These were the sons of Esau, who is Edom. And then the chapter concludes in verse 43 with this way, Esau was the father of the Edomites. So clearly, Moses wants the children of Israel to be aware of who they are, to be aware of the fact that they are connected to Israel and they are connected to the promises of God through him. But he also wants them to recognize that there's another kingdom out there, another kingdom that descended from Esau, Jacob's brother, who is Edom. Now, certainly these wandering Israelites were already aware of Esau's descendants, painfully aware. In fact, in verse 12 of chapter 36, we're introduced to Esau's grandson, Amalek. Amalek, according to verse 16, became a chief. Ultimately, he became the father of the Amalekites. Later in Deuteronomy chapter 25, we learn that it was the Amalekites who had attacked the children of Israel shortly after they had been freed from Egyptian slavery. Moses reminds the Israelites that it was Amalek who attacked your rear ranks, all of the stragglers at your rear, when you were tired and weary and he did not fear God. There is an example of some of those who came from Edom and from Esau, but that was not the only bad interaction the children of Israel had had with the Edomite descendants of Esau. After being attacked by the Amalekites, according to Deuteronomy—excuse me, according to Numbers 20—as the Israelites got closer to the Promised Land, they had to go around the land of Edom because the Edomites refused any brotherly kindness to them. The Edomites refused to allow the children of Israel to pass through their land on the way to the promised land. Even Israel's offer to pay for any of the water that any of their animals drank was met with a cold denial. Edom said, you may not pass through. Clearly the sibling rivalry between Jacob and Esau lived on in their offspring. In fact, brotherly kindness was replaced by national hostility. So for the Israelites who wandered around in the desert waiting to enter the promised land, this passage was filled with historical markers reminding them of the nation and the kingdom of which they were a part and the nation and the kingdom of which those who opposed them were a part. And there's a lot more that we could dwell on with this and you're welcome to go back and, and, and study this more deeply. But for the sake of time this morning, I want us to move on to the next perspective though with which we can view this passage. And the next perspective is this. It's the comparative perspective, the comparative perspective. Note with me the sad and grievous events that Moses describes having happened to the nation of Israel or to Israel's family in chapter 35. There has already been a death in chapter 35. Back in verse 8, we learn of Deborah having passed. Deborah was, was, was uh, Rebekah's handmaid that had come with her from Padan Aram when she married Isaac, Jacob's father. And Deborah, by this point, Rebecca is already dead, and now we see that Deborah had joined up with Jacob's camp. And no doubt, Deborah's death was hard on Jacob, as is evidenced by the fact that he buried her underneath a terebinth tree or an oak tree, and he named that place Alon Bakuth, which means the oak of weeping. That gives us insight into just how difficult Deborah's death had been on Jacob. But there's more weeping that occurs in this chapter. Our text began, as I began reading this morning, by telling us that Rachel, Jacob's most favorite wife, the wife you remember that he worked for seven years for and then, and then realized he had to work seven more years in order to, to, to keep her hand in marriage, that she died while giving birth to Jacob's last son, Benjamin. And no doubt her death caused Jacob tremendous grief. But the final word of grief presented for us is when we read in verse 29 that after Jacob was finally reconnected and and obviously reconciled to his father Isaac, Isaac at 180 years old died as well. So ominously in chapter 35, we read about three deaths and the grief that certainly those deaths would have caused. But then there's still more bad news in this chapter. There's a key piece of information sort of just thrown in in the middle of the story without a lot of commentary on it. But we cannot miss it. We dare not miss it. Verse 22, And it happened when Israel dwelt in the land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about it. This is an admittedly strange and Repulsive, honestly, piece of information. And we might want to know, why would Reuben do such a vile thing? Was it just to satisfy his physical lusts and desires? I don't think so. I believe that Reuben was motivated more by politics than he was by lust. Remember, Reuben was Jacob's oldest son, and his mother was Leah. You learn that just down in the very next verse. And... Also remember that by doing what he did, by defiling Bilhah the way he did, who had been Rachel's handmaid, that had been Leah's sister's handmaid, then doing what he did, Reuben made certain that when Rachel died, Bilhah could never supplant his mother Leah as the chief wife of Jacob. This was a political move on his part. He was devaluing. He was effectively ruining Bilhah from ever ascending to a greater position as one of his father's wives. Furthermore, according to known ancient Near Eastern cultural forms, by taking his father's concubine, Reuben was attempting to seize Jacob's authority and leadership of the family. And in that case, in he was really trying to lay claim to the kingdom that had been promised to Jacob. And in fact, you can go see this happen again and again and again throughout the Old Testament. Even with David's sons and with Saul's sons, these same kind of things happen. Now, here's what I want you to consider for just a moment. God has renamed Jacob to Israel. And he has told them that he would be a nation and that he would be a company of nations and that kings would come from him. And that he would inherit this land that had been promised by Abraham. Grand and wonderful promises given to him. But at the end of chapter 35, what we see is that Israel finds himself in Hebron having had to say goodbye to some of the people that were closest to him. And he is devastated, weeping because of their deaths. Not only that, but his firstborn son has done vile things that could be, le- be described as nothing less than disrespect and dishonorable to his father. That's, that's the way this kingdom looks. Now let's compare that to what we read about Esau and his kingdom in chapter 36. Moses is clear to alert us to the fact that from Esau had come many, many, many descendants. So much so that chiefs had to be established over them, over the various ones. And then kings had to be established over those chiefs in order to rule the people. So we see that this kingdom that's established under Esau is marked by great power. But it's also marked by great strength. Verse 20 of chapter 36 is an interesting verse because it begins a segmented genealogical section that follows the lines of the sons of Sierra the Horite who inhabited the land. Now, this is probably where a lot of us checked out when we got to right around verse 20, because we're going, what in the world are we reading about right here? Here's what I want you to know. What we understand is that Esau came and took the land from the Horites who lived in Sierra. As a matter of fact, according to Deuteronomy chapter 2, Esau drove out the Horites. These were the aboriginal inhabitants of Sierra who lived there before Esau ever arrived. And so by his strength, he drove them out of the land and then he married those daughters of the, the, those who the Horites to his sons in order to increase his political power. And what that tells us is that Esau had become a powerhouse of a man. He had great power and, and all kinds of influence in that region. And his, the strength of his clan was so great that he could drive out a people group. That's what we need to understand. Esau was powerful. Esau was strong. He was also wealthy. As a matter of fact, he had much possessions. That's why he went to Seir to begin with. Did you pick up on the fact that he and all of his possessions couldn't remain in the land with what Jacob also had? So he took everything he had and left to go and settle in the land of Seir. And certainly once he got there, he and his offspring leveraged, leveraged their power and their strength To gain even more once they got in the land. Now, if you look at those two understandings and you look at chapter 35 and what's become of Jacob and then you look at chapter 36 and what's become of Esau and you begin to make a comparison between those two when you look at that, which one appears stronger? Which kingdom appears more attractive? The kingdom headed up by Jacob, who is Israel, I mean, comparatively speaking, it's small. Moses doesn't talk about the explosion of growth and the, and the proliferation of his, of his offspring the way he does about Esau. And it's marked by death and mourning and incest and struggle for power. And as, verse 30, as, as chapter 37, verse 1 makes clear, all of them in the land of Canaan were still strangers. They didn't own a thing. Edom, on the other hand, Edom was strong. Edom was powerful. It was expanding. It was wealthy. It was subduing all that was around it. In fact, we consider what God said to Jacob back in chapter 35, verse 11. He, he told Jacob, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you and kings shall come from your body. Well, it, it really appears, based upon what we've read this morning, that it was Esau who was actually fulfilling that promise and, and that command more so than Jacob was. In fact, verse 31 of chapter 36 says, There were kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king ruled and reigned over the children of Israel. So, again, comparatively speaking, which of these two kingdoms appears stronger? Which one is more attractive? Before you answer that question, though, there's still one more perspective we ought to consider. We've looked at the historical perspective. And we've also just considered the comparative perspective. But before we make a determination as to which kingdom was the preferable one, let's look at the third perspective. It's faith's perspective. Faith's perspective. Let me point out to you that both the historical and the comparative perspectives lean on what can be seen and what can be measured. Both of them look at things from the outside. Faith's perspective, however, looks past what is purely visible on the surface and it evaluates things from God's perspective. Let me illustrate what I mean. Based upon what we have previously studied in Genesis before we got to the text that we're at today, we know that that before Jacob and Esau were born and they were still wrestling with one another in their mother's womb, you remember that the Lord appeared to their mother, Rebekah, and he he made this announcement. He said in chapter 25, verse 23, he says, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Now we've already established Esau was born first. And by the right and customs of primogeniture, which which all of those nations at that time would have followed. Esau was the one to whom the blessing would have naturally been passed, but God said, Not so fast. It will not be that way here. Though Esau was the firstborn, he nevertheless became the one who would serve Jacob, the secondborn, the younger brother. And consequently, since Moses has plainly told us that Jacob is Israel and that Esau is Edom, then regardless of how powerful, and regardless of how strong and regardless of how mighty Edom had become, God had established that Edom would ultimately bow down to Israel. And what that means is that we should not be deceived by outward appearances of kingdoms that are described to us in these two chapters. You see, from faith's perspective we recognize that something far greater and more powerful than what can be seen and measured on the surface is going on behind the scenes. I think it also bears repeating that even though by right of birth, Esau stood to be the one who would receive the blessing that had first been given to his grandfather Abraham and then to his father Isaac, Esau didn't care about that blessing. If you'll recall... His birthright was of such little importance to him that back in chapter 25, he traded it to Jacob for a bowl of red stew. You see, God's promised blessing had no real value to Esau. Neither did spiritual things. That is evidenced by the fact that Esau, as, verse, as chapter 36 tells us, Esau took his wives from the Canaanites Now, if you remember, that is explicitly what God had commanded Abraham should never happen. That is why Abraham sent his servant back to Padan Aram to find a wife for his son Isaac and brought that wife back. It is also why Jacob went to Badan Aram to find a wife for himself because God had commanded, you will not take wives from among the Canaanites who were these these people who worshiped other gods and and were proliferate in their idolatry. Esau, however, obviously did not care about that. which shows that he really didn't care about God. Furthermore, Esau didn't care about the promised land. Not only do we read in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 36 that he took Canaanite wives, but then in verses 6 through 8, we read that he took those wives and his family and all of his possessions and he left the promised land. he moved away from the land that God had said, this will be the land in which my people come and the land in which it will be established that I will be worshipped. So if we look past what is on the surface, we realize that what we are dealing with in these two chapters really are more than just two earthly kingdoms. On the one hand, with Israel, we have a kingdom established by God made up of those who would be His children, people to whom He had promised to be their God, people with whom He had established His covenant, people He had promised to bless, a kingdom whose whose. Uh, the people of hutch which would outnumber the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. God had promised to give them a land which, in which they would dwell. He had promised to drive out their enemies from before them. He had said those who bless you will be blessed. Those who curse you will be cursed. And furthermore, he had promised that through that kingdom, through that nation, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. This is the kingdom of Israel that God had promised. On the other hand, You have Edom, a godless kingdom, a kingdom permeated by the worship of idols, a kingdom with no regard for God or his laws, a kingdom that did not care about his promises, a kingdom built purely on power and strength and wealth, a kingdom built on things that can only be seen and measured with the physical eye. Now, here in the 21st century, if we're honest, doesn't this kingdom of Edom sound a lot like the kingdom of the world that surrounds us? And furthermore, just like what we have read in this passage, if we look at the headlines and look at things from a historical perspective, if we listen to the news reports and we observe what is happening around us and continues to happen, doesn't it appear that the modern-day Edom is winning? The godless self-serving, power-driven, wealth-seeking kingdom of this world appears to be coming out on top. And just like those children of Israel, we too can look back and we can see how this godless kingdom of this world has won battle after battle in its opposition against the kingdom of God. Day after day after day, it appears that as believers, we are being attacked because of our faith and we are losing ground. All the while, those who thumb their nose at God and His rule appear to be growing and appear to be strengthening. This power, this, their, their power and their might and their godless causes appear to be consistently gaining more and more support all the time. And the truth is, that can be very discouraging to the people of God. It can be downright disheartening. In fact, that is the exact feeling that the psalmist Asaph had when he wrote Psalm 73. If you haven't read Psalm 73 in a while, I would encourage you to go back and do a little while reading that later on today. I would encourage you to read it because Asaph admits in Psalm 73 that he nearly stumbled. He nearly slipped. In other words, he nearly lost his faith because he saw the wicked and the godless world around him prospering and doing so well. He admits to being jealous of their success all the while being repulsed by their lack of faith and their lack of regard in the things of God. Psalm 73 is as honest and transparent of an acknowledgment of the frustration and despair that can come from looking at the world purely from a historical and comparative perspective as you will find in Scripture. And what he says is, Behold, these are ungodly who are always at ease, and they increase in riches. And therefore, he says in verse 13, Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain. Friend, that is where you end up. That is where you end up if you only go off the historical and the comparative perspectives. Off of what can be seen from the outside. But I want you to know that Asaph didn't stay there. He moved to view things from faith's perspective and listen to what his evaluation led him to say. In verse 16 he says, when I thought of how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. Surely you set them in slippery places and you cast them down to destruction. You see, the point is simply this. Just as it was for Asaph, and so it was for the children of Israel, and so it is for us. God calls us to live by faith in His promises, not purely by sight. Just because the godless kingdoms of this world appear to be winning and advancing and getting stronger all the time, just because just because those who seek to follow the Lord live in according to his word, just because we suffer and experience pain and hardships, we must not be too quick to allow those external things to determine our allegiance. While historical perspectives and while comparative perspectives have their places as believers, we are called to live according to faith's perspective. Therefore, let me ask you again, which kingdom appears stronger? Which kingdom is more attractive? But before you answer, as Paul Harvey would say, let me give you the rest of the story. Because you see, what we learn is that how things are presented to us here in chapter 35 and 36, admittedly, a couple of the most boring passages that you might want to come across and read, there's nothing boring about what takes place here. Understand that the people to whom Moses was writing who were wandering around in Israel eventually ended up in the land of Canaan. God brought them in and gave the promised land to them. And just as God had commanded, they became fruitful and they multiplied and God blessed them. And although Edom had been ruled over kings long before Israel had ever been ruled over by kings, notice that Israel's kingdom expanded to the degree that ultimately Edom became subject underneath Israel. It first became subject underneath King Saul and then it became severe under King David according to 2 Samuel 8 and 1 Kings 11. Nevertheless, the animosity between those two kingdoms continued to grow. They were always at one another Edom continued to grow, but so did Israel. And it lasted all the way to the New Testament. As a matter of fact, you'll remember that when Israel found itself under the rule of the Roman Empire in the New Testament, there was an appointed ruler over Israel. Rome had appointed a man named Herod, who was an Idumean, which, by the way, meant he was an Edomite. And what did Herod do? Well, when the Magi came from the east and said, we have come to worship him who was born king of the Jews, what did King Herod do? The the, the Edomite king who ruled over Israel, he had all the boys two years old and under who lived in the land of Bethlehem put to death. Why? Because Herod the Edomite tried to kill the rightful heir to the throne. But as I reminded you at the beginning, from little things, big things grow. You see, born in that little town of Bethlehem, in a manger, in a cattle stall was the true king of kings and the Lord of lords. The one both fully God and fully man, the man Jesus Christ. And though Herod tried to have him killed, God protected his son. But he did not protect his son so that his son could ascend to an earthly throne. No, Jesus Christ came to establish not an earthly kingdom, but a spiritual kingdom. A kingdom that ultimately fulfills everything that God had promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. A kingdom not limited to to simply the nation of Israel and the land of Canaan. But according to Philippians 2 and Revelation 7 and a host of other passages tells us that it extended to every nation and every tribe and every tongue and it spreads throughout the entire universe and it will endure through all eternity. The scriptures declare further that those who wish to become a part of this kingdom do so by humbling themselves before the king of kings and by acknowledging their sin and receiving forgiveness through faith in what he has done for them by dying on the cross and rising from the dead. To do so necessitates brothers and sisters and anyone else in this room, you must understand that what that necessitates is that you have to turn your back upon the kingdoms of this world and on all the things that they promise to offer you. You renounce the kingdom of this world's claim upon your life, and you declare that you will not be fooled by its deception and its lies. Faith's perspective recognizes that what can be seen and measured in this world is not all that there is. Rather, the kingdom of God transcends that which can be seen, and it surpasses that which can be measured. And therefore, I say to you this morning do not be fooled by the wealth, The power and the might of the kingdoms of this world do not buy into their lies and do not become mesmerized by their glitter because they are only temporary. They will not last. In 70 AD, when Rome finally put Israel down, do you know where we find no further historical record? What kingdom we find no further historical record of? The kingdom of Edom. You don't hear anything really from history after that. What I want you to know, from faith's perspective, we must turn our eyes to the kingdom of God and to the Savior whom he has sent, the Lord Jesus Christ, which brings me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. Do not be impressed with godless, earthly kingdoms that will not last. Rather, put your faith in Jesus Christ, whose kingdom and reign will endure for all eternity. Let me ask you once more, what kingdom appears stronger to you? What kingdom is more attractive to you? Do you realize that that question is really the most important question that you can ask yourself? What kingdom am I a part of? What kingdom gets my attention? What kingdom do I aspire to succeed in? What kingdom have I hitched my wagon to? That question is the most important question that any of us in this room can ever ask. What kingdom are you a part of? I want you to know on the authority of God's word, the Bible says, humble yourself. Recognize your sin, admit it. Trust in Jesus Christ and he will bring you into his kingdom, a kingdom that will last. If you have done that, and you're discouraged by the things that you see taking place out there, don't be discouraged. The end has already been written. And God has told us who comes out on top. And so allow that to continue to encourage you to make your life into what God wants it to be as a part of his kingdom. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together.